welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Overwolf. With over 1,500 games supported, 165,000 creators, and 38 million monthly active users, Overwolf is the guild for in-game creators. Whether you're a gamer, creator, or game studio, Overwolf is the ultimate destination for integrating UGC in games. For game studios, Overwolf offers CurseForge for Studios, a white label solution that lets game makers and publishers easily integrate mods safely and seamlessly into their games, both existing and new, at zero cost. It's battle-tested by AAA studios and games, including Maxis with The Sims 4, Studio Wildcard with Ark, Take-Two Interactive, and others. For creators, Overwolf is the all-in-one platform that enables creators to build, distribute, and monetize in-game apps, mods, and game servers. In 2022, Overwolf paid over $160 million to in-game creators, proving that they truly value the talents and contributions of the gaming community. You can check out everything Overwolf has to offer at overwolf.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, Let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And today I'm joined by some awesome panelists that uh, we like to see here very often. We've got Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik, Anil Desgupta, co-founder of First Light Games, and Jonathan Nass, the CEO of Clash TV. And uh, Aaron, you have some things you want to run through real quick? Yeah, well, first of all, excited to be here with this crew again. Uh, the one thing I wanted to mention before we dive into the topics today is that the Open Gaming Research Initiative is starting to pick up full steam. So you probably heard us um, announce this effort in the past few weeks, um, but some of the the pieces that we announced are, are starting to click into place and get published. So this week, for example, we published our first fully public um, game deconstruction in some time with many more plans. So this latest one was about um, Xbox's mobile Doom game, and it unpacks, you know, not just the game itself, but also, uh, you know, the issues with Xbox's broader mobile strategy, tactics with levering, with leveraging key IP, etc. So, so Nick, uh, our, our great writer for that, did um, an awesome job. So recommend people checking that out. And also next week, we're publishing our first public uh, genre report, which will cover the mobile strategy and card market. Um, and having read the drafts of that so far, I think it's it's really great and, and people are going to love it. And there's going to be many more genre reports um, coming in the months ahead too. So that's just two examples of the Open Gaming Research Initiative picking up. Those are going to be two um, pretty pretty packed and like great hard-hitting um, reports. So definitely make sure you're signed up and paying attention to to Novik Digest, where we link to all of these things. Um, and even if you're not interested in everything, there's definitely going to be some good stuff uh, and diverse stuff that I, I expect you still will like and will continue to ramp up. So just wanted to give a shout out to those two pieces and make sure people know where to find them. 
Yeah, definitely. I think if uh, if you haven't, if you're not already subscribed, then you'll find out uh, that we're definitely blowing up your inbox with lots and lots of good content now, uh, which is, you know, fantastic. Probably a lot of backlog for people to read, but make sure to hold on to stuff for the weekend when you have some time if you, if you don't get a chance, because a lot of good content, obviously a little biased there myself, but I think some good stuff. We've got also some great topics to talk about today. Uh, you know, some prescient news here. Uh, just a lot of different things spread across, especially the earnings seasons uh, here. We've got Tencent taking over a, a majority shareholding of Techland, which should be pretty interesting. Blizzard starting to shift some gains over to Steam, interestingly. Uh, some earnings updates around Ubisoft, Stillfront, some other companies. Uh, some stuff around Twitter becoming X and how that might also relate to brand transitions with EA having to switch over to Football Club from no longer being FIFA. So why don't we dive right into the Tencent stuff here just to kind of get the uh, the meaty money stuff out of the way. Sure. Um, so as you all might recall, when we did our half-year review a month ago, one of the questions was, what are you keeping an eye on for the rest of the year? And, and my answer was essentially to keep an eye on the companies with significant capital, um, including those who have been pretty quiet lately, and Tencent being you know, a prime number one example of that. Um, and since we had that conversation in July, Tencent has broken its effective silence within the realm of games deals twice. And so the first one was, was actually a quieter announcement to fund Lighthouse Games, which is a new studio, uh, console PC studio, I think, with the goal of becoming one of the UK's prominent AAA studios. So there was that. And then second, this week, Tencent announced that it's buying a majority stake of Techland, which is a longtime studio founded in 1991 and is at least currently best known for its work on the Dying Light franchise. But it's also worked on a bunch of other um you know, IPs over the year, like Dead Island, Call of Juarez, etc. Um, so anyways, it's a talented studio. Um, and with a couple deals happening within a month after a long hiatus, I'm just I'm just noting, noting this and just saying, I think we should still keep an eye on Tencent. Maybe things are starting to pick up a little bit there. But at minimum, one of my, my favorite uh, games of the past couple of years, Dying Light 2 specifically, um, it's heading over to, to Tencent land. Do you expect that to have any effect on Dying Light as a franchise or uh, like any DLC for Dying Light 2 or anything like that? Was there anything announced in the short term? No, I don't think anything was announced. And Dying Light 2 came out a, you know, a while ago at this point. So I don't think this deal is going to have any profound impact on <laughs> you know, that specific game's plans. But I mean, maybe being able to, to fundraise or sell sell partial stake it'll have an impact on the next dying light game the timelines there the scope there some of the broader planning around that or maybe even some other um other ips too we'll we'll see but i don't think we'll see any immediate major impact from this deal well cool well, hopefully it turns out to be a good thing we see a dying light 3 just even bigger and better right it is a, as you said a great franchise and, and we hope that any of these kinds of transitions are generally net benefit for those those kinds of things and not destructive in some way but speaking of transitions and moving things over uh blizzard seeming to kind of capitulate and moving over things to steam 
Yeah, this is super interesting. So starting 10th of August, uh, you'll be able to play Blizzard games using Steam. You won't just have to go through Battle.net, although they do state that you will have to make a Battle.net account. So you're still going to be adding a little level of complexity there. And the first game that's going to be coming over is Overwatch 2. And specifically, it, it seems that they're going to be launching that with their PvE story missions. If you remember that whole kind of hullabaloo and <laughs> hurrah about that that we've talked about a few times. That's going to be the first game that they come over to. Um, I think obviously this is really interesting for a number of, of factors. I mean, one, we know that these days Activision Blizzard actually makes more money on PC than they do console, which is quite a big change for them. And that's without going steam. So I guess this really makes sense to like widen that audience even further from, from what they've got there, seeing that it's working really well. I think me and Devon are particularly looking forward to being able to play uh, Diablo whilst uh, in transit, stroke on the toilet. Maybe I shouldn't reveal too much information there, but on our Steam decks, being able to play your favorite Blizzard games, I think is a big win. Um yeah, I do think it's quite interesting though. I mean, it's, you know, they've, they're one of the few that with Battle.net, I feel they do have, or they did have a lot of success with that comparative to other launchers because of the quality of their products. But I feel maybe the decline of, of Blizzard as a whole over many years now is maybe they, they can sort of see which way the wind is blowing. So maybe I'll throw that out to the panel, but that's certainly, yeah, but a big uh, step of change, I would say, from them. Um, and of course, what will happen with with the the, the takeover now going through as well? Well, <laughs> you know, how that's going to tie into Game Pass and things like that. I think it's very interesting because you nailed kind of the pivot at Activision Blizzard from console to PC. You know, during my tenure, the big news was actually, ironically, when Bungie became available on Battle.net, and it was the first time that, you know, an Activision yeah, yeah. title was available on the Blizzard platform. You know, and that was about sort of the beginning of the shift towards the power of PC. And now to see the shift become so large that obviously, you know, a, a massive PC gaming platform like Steam becomes a beneficiary of the entire Blizzard ecosystem. You also sort of can't think a little bit, you know, putting your regulatory hat. Well, they've been hugely successful opening the aperture to third-party platforms, you know, lessens any question, you know, around antitrust and anti-competitiveness. So, you know, who knows? This decision was clearly made before this announcement. And, you know, given the strategy, was it in fact another lever to prove that they're not building an anti-competitive distribution landscape? I'll just add to really quickly that if you look at, um, like, the earnings results of Activision, it's been pretty clear that Blizzard has been struggling to you know, maintain or grow its monthly active users. And even with the launch of Diablo 4, you can see that there are still strains um, there. So maybe it's even with the launch of Diablo 4 and the new users that brought on, the company didn't really see uh, an increase in users, uh, you know, too much, um, you know, quarter over quarter, et cetera, which shows that, you know, there's some pressures on some of the other leading franchises there. And I think just finding ways to tap into more distribution and, adding more ways for people to get involved is also at least partially a way to kind of help just get back to to growth in some sense. So Steam becomes more powerful of a force. Um, you know, this is just another testament to the big companies still having to lean on 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 these other platforms for their own growth ambitions or else they do suffer too. Can I ask, was it a conscious choice from Activision Blizzard to shift to PC or was that just the result of where the users moved to? Because I do find that kind of unusual that, especially with Call of Duty, that used to be a beast on consoles specifically, right? Modern Warfare especially. So why has that not sort of stayed as a sort of tentpole for them? 
and it's moved to PC. I can definitely understand mobile, especially like activation in China and things like that, because that's where, you know, those guys don't own, you know, so much of consoles and they could maybe move to, but they've been moved to more to mobile than PC. So I'm just a bit curious because whilst I understand this move, it does also sort of seem that like maybe they're recognizing that they just can't, well, Aaron just mentioned it, their growth, that they can't grow. So they're just going to kind of keep sustaining what they've got. Maybe I bring too much into it. I don't think it was intentional for shift. You know, again, I go back to my tenure and there was three multi-billion dollar mm. console IP, right? There was Skylanders, there was Bungie, and there was Call of Duty. Two of them were Sunset, and that came, you know, a couple of years after Sunset and Guitar Hero, which was another, you know, multi-billion dollar console franchise. So I just think, frankly, they've been a- unable to recrack the Billionaires Club you know, on console and, excuse me, and the hits that they've had have been sort of, you know, smaller scale, you know, the Crash Bandicoots of of the world. You know, that said, we obviously obviously know that the PC ecosystem is higher margin. So if you can't find growth from top line growth, you try to find growth from, from margin. And certainly, you know, pivoting towards PC, if you're not seeing top line growth, will increase margin. So if you're under, you know, public shareholder pressure to, you know, continue to increase earnings per share and you're not growing the top line, your only pivot is towards where your highest margin customer is. It's funny as well, because this, like, you're talking about going one direction, but it's really, they kind of seem to be going in a lot of directions because, for example, the the Diablo side, they've gone towards the console a lot more, right? Where, you know, they supported console stuff with Diablo 3. They started eventually, like, late stage, they supported uh, Switch. Uh, and then, like, the Diablo 4 launch was a lot more across the platforms with crossplay enabled and things like that. So they seem to actually be supporting both sides of it with, like, a PC native game going more towards the console. And then, like, the console heavy games maybe going towards the PC side and vice versa. But you also have situations like where Call of Duty has also been on Steam for a while, right? Like, that's why I played the Modern Warfare 2 is on Steam. That's not one that has to come over. And I almost even forget it's on there. I go to play Diablo 4 and I see it pop up with something about Modern Warfare. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I guess I could play it on here also. And you have that with like EA's uh, you know, system as well. And all these systems where they try to introduce their own thing, even Ubisoft's, they all still force their own logins and things like that. But they also like give you this access. Now, of course, when they when they do that, right, they, they go through Steam, they have to give Valve a cut of that. And obviously that's where like the compromise seems to come in. Right. And, and you know, to Aaron's point, is this, is this a situation where they're like, you know what, this game's not doing well enough that we are, we're willing to take a 30% hit or whatever deal they strike to be able to bring this over to a platform with a new audience, maybe even get some new exposure, like from seeing what your friends are playing on steam. Like, obviously you're not gonna see what your friends are playing on Battle.net If you're playing on steam and you know, those sorts of like effects, to grow exposure. I mean, is that like really, do you think worth it, for example, for that 30% loss? Speaking of taking a, taking a hit here, we've got CD Projekt uh, laying off about 9% of its workforce. Yeah, so the era of efficiency continues. And that's something we've been talking about for the past year or so. And so it was just announced that CD Projekt is laying off uh, about 100 people, which is 9% of its staff, which is a pretty big cut and another hit on a culture that is still recovering from all things cyberpunk. And on one hand, of course, this is disappointing, especially for those at effects. And it does seem like leadership is trying to be thoughtful uh, about how these layoffs are conducted, such as by giving you know several months advance notice as to when um, certain employees will actually need to depart and stop working at the company. But on the other hand, it's really 
not totally a surprise given that the company has made pretty large changes to its product suite. And one big example is that they are sunsetting all things Gwent, the the Witcher-themed card game, um, at the end of this year. And as of the last earnings report, five or so percent of the company was still working on that franchise. And it was actually closer to like 15% a couple years ago. And so even with that main um, style of game um, being removed, it, you know, it has like natural repercussions for um, who needs who needs to work on other things. And so the outcome, of course, is just going to be a slightly more focused, more streamlined business. And that's that really is a good thing. And as we've mentioned before, um, you know, what matters next for CD Projekt is just crushing like the upcoming Cyberpunk Phantom Liberty DLC to keep that franchise viable and humming. And then, of course, moving on to the next big Witcher game. And this is a company where those tent poles will define the vast majority of the, of what matters in the outcome for for this company. Um, but but yeah, through through that refocusing, um, they're having to make some changes. And so obviously this is big news for CD Projekt, but, you know, and, and mentioning it more just to, you know, continue like pointing out the milestones of some of these like broader themes that are that matter and are happening to the entire games industry. And so, again, the era of efficiency, it continues. It's not over yet. So my question about the era of efficiency is in this new arguably bull market. Does that remove some of the pressure for efficiency with stock prices re-increasing at a rapid pace? Is Wall Street no longer going to reward efficiency or do we think this is a trend that's going to continue? I think it's going to continue. I think that um, what I mean, we'll see. I mean, no one really knows what's going to happen next in, in the market. But what feels different to me is that in the 2021 era, it's just everyone was rewarded for growth <laughs> at all costs. <clears throat> and it seems like um, at least even if we are entering more of an optimistic stage in the market, there still is more is more of a well-rounded focus on not just driving top-line growth, but creating actual, you know, creating actual value through cash flows um, and such to to kind of determine which companies should get rewarded in the market and which don't. And so I don't think we'll be returning exactly to the way um, it was before. Um, but yeah, certainly in in some cases the market will be more forgiving, I think, but not not fully the same way. But curious if you agree or disagree with that. Well, I mean, I just think as we're starting to see, it's bifurcation, right? You know, Tesla returned to a world of extreme top line growth at the expense of margin and was not punished, right? (laughs) So it's, uh, I I think we're recalibrating. I agree it will not go to back to the, the irrational exuberance of 21, but I think we may be recalibrating to not be so hyper-focused on EBITDA and efficiency and start to re-reward growth, at least in select outcomes. I think that's fair. I guess the question I have then with it, like specifically a CD project, but also like probably applying to some of these other ones that have had to like really tighten the belt is when they're, when they're relying on, on a couple tentpole franchises like this, does that limit their ability to grow out of these franchises? Like for example, 
uh, Cyberpunk was a new franchise for CD Projekt, right? They were relying pretty heavily on The Witcher before. Let's say Cyberpunk is not able to pick up the same level of excitement for continued you know, growth because of the big initial failure that it had uh, because of all the problems, right? And let's say the next Witcher isn't an initial hit. Do they end up in a situation where they're just really having to like think about, do we just start cutting huge amounts of people? Do we need like more investment? How do we like grow out of that situation when we don't have another franchise in the wings that we've been working on? Because Cyberpunk kind of was that franchise, right? Where it was like, that was supposed to kind of help with, uh, you know, the gaps in, in The Witcher and things like that. Is that a problem when you're a company that only has one or two franchises and you don't have any room budget-wise to or people-wise to be able to continue to expand that out? Well, I think what Aaron says is kind of true that, you know, Gwent was really their passion project. They kind of allowed their team to work on it thanks to all their good work from The Witcher. So it's got to be one of those that's painful, but is, I think, professional and pragmatic to say, look, you've got, you got to work on either The Witcher or Cyberpunk. Um I think as we reach more of a consolidation phase and, you know, even some of the previous stories that we've covered already on this, you know, this week's Metscast, it's, you know, sometimes it's about maximizing what you've already got rather than going for something new that's more of a gamble to pay off. So I think, to be honest, I think it, it, it's one of those that we, I, I, you know, don't want to re- kind of repeat his words, but I agree with Aaron. It's like, it might be painful for them to do internally, but I think it really makes a lot of business sense and smart going forward. Deploy your resources in the best possible way. Focus on titles that are more likely to do well and, and, and just take advantage of that. Yeah, not all not all IPs are created equally. Uh, not all games <laughs> are created equally, right? Like if they if they really go fully focused on expanding like the core Witcher game or building up the cyberpunk universe, like that could be all they need to, to really turbocharge the business for the next few years. And also to their credit, they still are, you know, creating new games, working on new projects. This is less deciding not to work on new things and more deciding to stop working on something old that's no longer delivering as expected. And so I think the conversation is different, but yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you could recalibrate too hard in the wrong direction at some point, but um, but I think for the most part, getting getting leaner and more streamlined on what you know matters most is generally um, a good decision. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see how that Phantom Liberty DLC does too, in terms of like the future of Cyberpunk, right? If that flops hard, uh, then there's a possibility they're just a Witcher game company again at that point. <laughs> Uh, depending on how things go, I doubt they're going to spin out a CCG from uh, from Cyberpunk anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Although that would be, I'd be interested in seeing that. I, I actually do own the physical copy, the original Cyberpunk CCG. So maybe they can just bring that back. I was, right? was going to say it has been done in the past. Yeah, I seem yeah. to remember that too. Right, still yeah, got a box cool. of that around. Yeah, but, that was uh, Wizards of the Coast, wasn't it? Who made I that? think it was. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you never know. You never know, right? Like plenty of opportunities. Like you guys said, a passion project. <laughs> so maybe they'll even just keep Cyberpunk going, even if Phantom Liberty doesn't uh, work out. Especially with the the transmedia success, at least with the with the show, which was kind of a one off. Uh, but you know, you never know. They might be able to expand out in some other directions. I know there's like graphic novels and things like that, also. So you know, maybe there's some opportunity there. But uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Tesla. We've got Twitter rebranding to just X. Uh, so that's going to be awkward for everyone Xing about this podcast. Yes. Yeah, so you know, I think we've got a couple of topics this week that involve branding and rebranding, and also involve brands that have baggage, legacy, potentially damaged brands. And let me sort of lay out the two 
scenarios. You referenced, you know, we've got Tesla moving to X. You know, we're not talking about gaming specific, but we're talking about a platform where, you know, a lot of gaming content is distributed, consumed, et cetera. And we've also got FIFA rebranding to Sports FC. You know, that in and of itself, not new news. It was announced last year, but now we see it in the marketplace. There's a couple of layers to this, right? Layer one is how much brand matters on top of like UX and experience, right, to the marketplace. Layer two is how much does awareness, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, how much baggage is on that brand matters more than something unknown or lack of brand. And I think you have both of those levers taking place in both of these examples, right? You know, I think for all the hate that sort of this X rebrand has gotten on the internet, I think people have forgiven the baggage that Twitter brings to the table, right? Like Twitter lost the scale war, right? Twitter's kind of stalled at 300, 400 million users, where Instagram, Meta, and TikTok all went to multi-billion users, right? They never made money when they were a publicly traded company. They were disparaged first as a platform for the coastal media elite with right-wing backlash. And then after Elon Musk dismissed for being right-wing Tesla fanboys, you know, so both ends of the political spectrum have had issues with Twitter. So I would argue whether X is the right answer or not, Twitter is a brand that did not have all positive baggage, right? Twitter potentially brought a lot of negative baggage. And so the question we're going to see is, does a generic, not particularly well thought out, potentially trademark fraught brand, you, you know, survive or not survive more or less than a, a brand that people somehow are having some amnesia about the challenges around the Twitter brand, right? All of a sudden, people have forgotten that Twitter was a challenged brand for a decade. And it's like, what happened to the Twitter that I loved? You hated Twitter last week. You hated Twitter last week. You didn't love it. Right. So why all of a sudden you love Twitter? Again, X is not necessarily the solution. And then as we move to the gaming side, FIFA itself, a damaged brand. Right. If you go back a number of years, the huge financial scandals around FIFA, that sort of dies down. And then, you know, there have been multiple articles written about the damage to the FIFA brand around this year's World Cup. Right. And so a brand that was not all positive is now no longer on a video game. And is that a net positive or a net neutral, right? Are people sure, you know, if I'm going to take the side of the FIFA brand was valuable, somebody walked into the store, they don't know what FC is. This isn't the game I bought before. They're not sure they're going to buy the right game. So they don't buy the right game or they don't download the right game, right? It doesn't have the brand equity, but it also doesn't have the brand baggage, right? So I think in both of these examples, we're going to decide or find out the marketplace is going to tell us is brand equity baggage laden or not more important than a less brand equity with less baggage? I was absolutely cracking up when you were saying some of the stuff about Twitter and X. I was like, Jonathan, tell us how you really feel right there. <laughs> it's not how I feel. It's how the marketplace feels. I, I was shocked. And again, it goes to how polarizing people can be, yeah. right? You know, like all of a sudden, you know, regardless of what you think about Elon Musk, Whatever he's doing now must be bad. And again, I am not saying X is the right word. I am not saying he's rolling it out in a professional manner. But all of a sudden, all the things that people disliked about Twitter are forgotten. And it's going to be interesting to see if all of a sudden the things that people disliked about FIFA are forgotten. Right? You know, FC is nearly as generic as X. Right? We've gone from like, a, in both cases, highly polarized, highly known brands to less polarized generic brands. 
let's see what the marketplace says. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on the the thief one in a moment because that's pretty hilarious. You're right to say that it's got a, what, how they came up with FC is God knows. But j- just on uh, Twitter and X, I mean, I think that is relevant for games industry because I think influencer marketing, in my opinion, is one of those things that isn't talked about enough as being one of the big paradigm shifts in how games are basically sold to customers over the last ten years. But we've got to a state where things like YouTube and or Twitch, Twitch is is still not profitable despite being around for so long. You've got to this kind of point where the top people are the top people. It's hard for new ones to break in. So how good is it really for getting it out there? It definitely plays a part in the strategy. You know, we touch upon it with Blizzard with what they're going to do with Overwatch and and things like this. But I feel like that is somewhere that is ripe for disruption. And I think what is interesting, I don't know if you saw this yourself on Twitter recently, but they started sharing like what content creators were making and these guys were kind of retweeting it. And I think that's like the big, I don't know if I say innovation, but it's probably the direction where it's going to go, where people will say, well, look how much I made because I was a great content creator on this platform. And without doubt, one of the best things to create content for is games because it just... It's one of the most efficient uses. If you've got a great game, it looks good. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like word of mouth or seeing something on on these sort of social media platforms really gains your attention. Like little plug from me, I don't know if you've seen Armored Core from From Software, but boy, I, that was a game that I I didn't even know was coming out, and now I'm like I've I think my wallet's just been deleted of sixty dollars because that's <laughs> that's going to get purchased by me. So that just shows you the the power of it. So I think that it, it is relevant, and there is something they could do there. I will be interested to see, though, you know, again, kind of mentioned how, you know, IPs are not made equal. Content creation isn't made equal either. These algorithmic feeds tend to be that the first sort of one to two percent that get in early make all the bucks and no one else can get in. Will this really change that model? Perhaps it will, perhaps it won't. Like some of the rumors with this kind of X rebrand are that it will allow more kind of crypto payments. And, you know, if you like a piece of content that you see, you can donate or tip a little bit it's kind of similar to what you have like in wechat in china which we know is kind of like where elon musk has i guess his sort of ultimate aspirations where that product will go so even though i think the brand the rebrand is awful uh, i'm kind of shocked as to like what twitter's become recently i do actually find this stuff pretty interesting because i do think that there is something there to say that there is some disruption there in terms of influencer marketing that if rethought could actually be net positive and very powerful for games so that's my stance on that then just moving on to the fifa thing i'm a huge football fan so i kind of love talking about this this one i find very interesting so you know fifa has been ea's one of their most successful franchises in fact makes more you know ultimate team makes i believe like 60 percent of their revenue yearly right so it's incredible that this game that was developed by the canadian devs of all you know from their hockey game that they modded into a football game ended up becoming such a beast for them But what's happened behind the scenes is that basically FIFA themselves felt that they were not getting paid enough for the license that they were giving. And, you know, FIFA and liking money, as you kind of before mentioned there, Jonathan, with the World Cup, they are pretty corrupt and they will do anything to kind of monetize. So actually EA's obviously decided, well, look, we're the ones that made the game and, you know, you stand to benefit from this as much as as we do. So we're not going to pay this ridiculous license you made. And that's why they've gone with, with this thing. And um, I am curious to this because it's, I can only think of one other time, uh, maybe someone else can correct me here, where I've seen something like this. And this was also a football game where Sega bought um, the championship manager IP 
And they wanted to make their own team of it. And so the original championship manager team made a game called Football Manager and Sega went on to make Championship Manager. And like, if you're a fan, you're like, wow, I'm going to get two football management games per year now instead of one. But what happened very quickly is that the Football Manager just won out because the quality was so good and they had like 20 years experience and, you know, Championship Manager kind of died. Um, and that was an example of where even though they lost the IP, they maintained the fans and it actually strengthened the franchise, if not weakened it. And that's the only time that I can, I can remember it. And so I wonder if it's going to be history repeating itself. So as you say, they're calling it EAFC 24, FC being football club, I guess. <laughs> I, I've got to be honest, that's one of the worst names, I think. I think if I had to name a football game, I could think about a thousand things. I suppose it's non-offensive. That's probably about the best thing that I can say from it. But I am interested as to like how they'll go from it because, again, FIFA, you know, Fair play to EA. Do you remember when like, Peter Moore came in? They did this amazing job where Pro Evo was always considered the better game in terms of gameplay, um, even though FIFA beat it on sales. And these days, people just don't talk about Pro Evo. That franchise kind of died. They tried to bring it back as a free-to-play version. They never did that. That was impressive, I think, in terms of sort of like corporate gaming to defeat a rival like that. Um, so now they're doing this and they're definitely putting out some of the stops. So this week they're announcing working closely with the Premier League. They've got a lot of the star players on the game and everything like that. But I'll be curious as to what the panel thinks here is like, you know, are they going about it the right way? Will it affect their sales? Will ultimately it just be maybe like, a, you know, will they make as much this year as last year? Because what is going to happen is that FIFA will allow the IP to be used by somebody else. And so I do imagine when that game comes out that when it comes to Christmas time, if you're like, you know, a mom and you just buy your kids their game every year, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, my kid loves FIFA. I'll just buy them FIFA. And then the kid's going to be like, oh, mom, why did you get me this piece of garbage? I wanted FC24. And you're going to be like, what is an FC24? And how does it relate to it? So sorry, I've thrown a lot of thoughts your way. I'll be curious what the panel thinks about it. No, I think I mean, you're right. And it's interesting because I have one more example for you, right? And it's not an exact corollary, but it's when Guitar Hero IP was purchased and Guitar Hero went on with a different set of studios and Rock Band went on with the original studio. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're right. Yeah. Not as quite as clean and up the middle, but all of a sudden, you know, a category of one and one clear leader became a category of two. And did you support, you know, the studio and, you know, the creative vision of the studio or did you support the IP? But I think you just literally described the worst fear outcome, right? It's holiday 2023 and mom goes and buys FIFA and, you know, daughter wanted EA Sport FC and returns ensue, right? Uh, not not good for anybody. I think it's going to be a win for EA, a pretty clear win. Um, I mean, on one hand, I think gamers know what's up <laughs> like they're they're pretty smart and so they're gonna gonna flock with um most everyone to ea fc um i also don't think fifa will be able to turn around anything compelling um anytime soon um and so all of the discourse all of the all of the you know even like shelf space online discussion, digital storefronts, it's all going to be EAFC. Like people are going to know um, what what's happening there. But the biggest win is just losing the that licensing cost, even if there is a slight dip to sales, which I don't know if there, there will be because so much of the sales is also on the 
you know, like the digital add-ons over the course of people playing the game. Um, but even if there is a small dip in sales, margins are still going to go up and there's a chance that profits will be even higher, even if sales slightly fall. Um, and then, of course, you know, even if there's like an awkward one year period, um, then everybody will just get back on the EAFC train, probably. And it'll continue to be, you know, continue its growth engine of probably increased sales and higher margins. And so I think this is a very value additive move on EA's part that's going to be hard to, to compete against. Also, I think EA has just been on top of this. Like they're executing the transition from what I can tell pretty well and communicating early and often, whereas FIFA doesn't even really seem to know what they're doing yet and hasn't even um, like announced anything. Um, so, so yeah, I'm pretty bullish on, on the EA side of the equation. But also like uh, not, you know, we, we've said that um, you know, not all IPs are created equally, not all contents created equally, but also not all brand changes are created <laughs> equally. Um, and so this one actually seems pretty straightforward. FC is like, you know, a very simple um, term that kind of means nothing. Um, but I don't think that really matters in this case because people will know exactly what it is and it's not going to change any behavior um, and, and the way that players play. Um, and, but I was thinking back on just even just connecting to the, the Twitter topic uh, about just like how many successful rebrands have there really been? <laughs> and, you know, what, like, what are the commonalities when it happens? And I think that, that often you see like consumer products have like light brand changes. And it's typically, typically fine when it is more like on the shelf or just people know what it is. Um, and we've, we've seen also a lot of brand changes happen at earlier stages of companies um, where like musically turned into TikTok, but before <laughs> like it went like crazy um, viral um, across the West. Um, and we saw, you know, like blue ribbon sports become Nike, but that was like before Nike was Nike. And so I think there are examples where that works in the earliest stages. And when it happens in the later stages, maybe it's like, you know, Facebook turning into meta, but that's a parent company and not like actually Facebook, the product turning into something else. And even like Oculus turning into Quest, like it, that still is like very early stages for them. So something like Twitter is, is interesting and is almost counter in some ways to where like it, it isn't in that upstart mode anymore. They're not, they're changing the name of the actual product in a huge way. <laughs> um, you know, not just like a company. So I put a bit more skepticism on, on something like that working out and being a good call, unless like the execution of expanding the purpose and mission is done really well, which, you know, Twitter has historically, you know, as it said, been like a clown car and that hasn't <laughs> really, hasn't really changed. It's a clown car that drove into a gold mine. I think is what someone said at some point, which I think is is largely true. So, so yeah, I'm I'm so much more bullish on something like an EA transitioning, like a the branding around one of its products that everyone already knows and will stick with, versus um, an already established company changing its branding to then also start changing its purpose, etc. So, I don't think we'll see too many of these changes happen in the gaming world, but um, I'm more bullish of it working here than perhaps <laughs> elsewhere in the world or in other industries. 
I was going to say that my hot take is that I think five years from now it will be called FIFA again because FIFA will realise that it was much better to have the IP associated with this game than something else. The The only way I could see that not being the case is if there's some sort of startup also based in sort of Saudi or something that really pulls out all the stops. But I just think a football game is so hard to make from scratch. Like you're not going to catch up with someone who has 30 years of experience with like the animation needed, the logic, the gameplay, the feeling, unless you literally took the top people from there and got them to recreate it. And yeah, that's my hot take anyway. I got, I got to imagine there's, there's marketing channels as well that they've established with a lot of their fan base, you know, that are looking for being a yearly game, right. Where, where people are looking forward to news and updates about whatever the next year's model is going to be, stuff like that. Uh, not to mention other, you know, marketing channels that might be affiliated with their account in some way. I got to imagine they're been pretty proactive about pushing that out to fans, of the game series. Like, yeah, maybe if you're new and you're like, I hear about this FIFA game all the time and I'd love to buy the new one. Yeah. There might be some confusion, but I think if you've been buying it for the last few years, consistently, you're, you're, you're hardcore into it. You're, I mean, really at the end of the day, their, their target audience is the people who are going to spend tons of money on uh, ultimate team. Right. So as long as those people know, that's, that seems to me like where the revenue is going to come from. Uh, and, and it's like, ah, whatever, maybe we lose a few retail sales. And as Aaron said, like, uh, if they're, if they're also shaving off the licensing costs might end up being a net, uh, positive in terms of like revenue, because they're like, Hey, we retained the people spending money. We don't really care about the few people who were like, just confused. Yeah. Maybe some grandmas don't buy it, you know, come Christmas season, but like, they probably weren't buying it for the, the kids every year. Anyways, they were just randomly buying a one-off if that's even a thing, right? We see also even like that idea of, the, the physical shelves going away, more games starting to announce they're going to have digital-only copies and stuff like that. So maybe the retail storefront starts to matter even less for that sort of Christmas holiday shopping. And instead, it's just, hey, uh, give me a gift card so I can buy FC on you know my, my PlayStation or Xbox or whatever when Christmas time rolls around, and I'm just going to buy it on the digital storefront anyways. Like, I don't think, I don't think grandma's gifting digital copies of games off of this stuff anyway. So it's like you know a gift card at best. So maybe that mitigates a lot of it. Um, but on the naming side, I think maybe they should have just gone with the ultimate team. A little more on the nose, right? Then they could have been clear about what they're really selling. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we'll see, you know. Uh, I, and I think on the X thing as well, like maybe maybe just Elon making such a huge stink about this publicly, uh, or, you know, just making this kind of this crazy thing. Everyone will find out about it. So I don't think there'll be any confusion. And I would argue that maybe he's still in kind of startup mode, given the amount of changes he's trying to make pretty radically to the company pretty fast but but we'll see this does seem like a a bit of a maybe a slow motion disaster maybe not but uh we have uh, some interesting earnings updates across a variety of companies here want to dive into yeah so i'm going to do a quick earnings palooza and cover three companies in a in a somewhat rapid fire way just kind of covering the the most interesting pieces and then we can discuss whatever um stands out. Um, so uh, three companies, Xbox, Ubisoft, still fraud. I'll just go quickly in that order. So first with um, Xbox within Microsoft, of course, if you look at the results right now, <laughs> it really is a tale of two cities. And that's probably unexpected. Revenue was up 1%, but essentially flat. Um, but content and services were up 5%, while hardware was down 13%. And so again, probably none of that is surprising. If you've listened to this episode or this podcast over the past year and understanding how, you know, Xbox has kind of been lagging behind um, and, and console sales. 
But uh, perhaps a silver lining to all of this is that the company did see record active user engagement for this particular quarter, which I'm sure was helped by Game Pass hours being up um, 22% um, over year over year. Um, And naturally, all of this is going to change in the next few months. But I I just sort of want to highlight it as as sort of like a final snapshot that kind of confirms where we're at in terms of knowing, just confirming, yes, Xbox hardware is still lagging. But yes, uh, the content is doing okay when, and yes, you know, they're doubly leaning into to, to Game Pass subscription. And so we might just see more prominent, um, uh, you know, like double underlining and bolding of what's already going on right now, but just with, just at, a, at an even bigger scale and in a few months. So, so that's just Xbox really quickly. I just want to cover it because it might even be the last time we cover it um, with, the current state of the business, depending on when the the deal closes. Um, The second company is Ubisoft, which on the surface, the results were not great. And because there were light declines across the board, revenue, earnings, etc. However, there there were a few things that signaled progress. And not all of this is new. Um, Ubisoft, of course, is committing to their heightened pipeline that we talked about before, which includes Assassin's Creed Mirage, Star Wars Outlaws, Avatar, Pandora, or whatever that game is called. And and they also teased another unannounced big release. Um, They also confirmed that Tencent through Level Infinite will be publishing the Assassin's Creed mobile game, which we kind of saw coming, but it's confirmed. And I think that's going to be a good step for Ubisoft in mobile, leveraging their most important franchise. Um, And also, the CEO confirmed that Ubisoft will continue to take steps toward cost cutting. And so it's just good to see that still be top of mind because for this company, as we've discussed before, the success, where they go from here really is a function of those two things, turning around the pipeline in a big, more focused way um, and actually delivering on it. And two, dramatically cutting costs and like lowering the bloat in this business. And it's still not as dramatic as it should be, but the market is taking it well. And since we 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 last talked and I, I kind of called bottom and just saying, you know, there might actually be a turnaround here. The stock is up 20% over the past month. And I'm obviously not going to take a victory lap after just a month. It's just 20%. But um, the market is at least confirming that at least this partial turnaround um, could be on on track. So, so anyways, those are just my quick thoughts on Xbox and Ubisoft. I'll, I'll pause there if anyone wants to comment on any of those before moving on to Stillfront, or I can just jump on in. I think you made a really good point that this might be a last clean slap, snapshot of right the current Microsoft gaming and Xbox business before it sort of gets commingled. And I think you called that sort of the key trend lines. Because it was an ever present topic on this podcast you know i can't i I can't sort of like we have to go through and like sort of say like put the pin on it right which is like it is pretty clear now that the deal will close you know all remaining slight resistance will end be rolled back and that we're gonna see a sea change in the microsoft business going forward today i think as all four of us called it was my recollection yeah, so final snapshot, and then we can hopefully finally start talking about what's new and different and interesting about the combined entity, but one quarter at a time. Um, the the last company that I just want to quickly hit on this time around is in a completely different corner of the industry, which is Stillfront. 
Um, and it's interesting because the company's bookings were flat, but their free cash flow grew 50%. Um, and admittedly, that might not be the best view since their operating cash flow, sorry for getting jargony, has also largely been flat. But it's a major shift in focus on what matters, what metrics matter, and what type of results the company is trying to achieve. And I suspect the largest lever of that free cash flow change is pretty heavily ramping down customer acquisition costs, which you know, honestly isn't great because that is the organic growth engine. Um, but working to optimize costs and go slightly more direct to consumer, which they're doing too, um, is is a good move. And so today, Stillfront, you know, is a nicely profitable business. But the other interesting thing I want to point out is that um, even talking about acquisitions isn't even a thing anymore. <laughs> it's not even being mentioned anymore um, by the business, at least in any of their written materials. And so, Stillfront has truly fully gone from their empire expansion mode to nurturing mode. And it's in a better shape than uh, like an embracer is, which was just overly hyper aggressive. Um, but it's, you know, it's really a group of these companies, not even just a still front or, or embracer that has so profoundly changed their tune in the past year. And so it's just, Again, just like along the journey, it's just sort of like a note that's that's interesting to see and kind of and and you know just um, note that is is happening. And I'm curious what you all think about this because obviously things cannot return to the way that they were before. Like when we talked about the market heating up, this is not an area of the market that's heating up or becoming more forgiving. It still is very. Um, People are very particular and critical because I think maybe the market has lost trust um, in this growth by acquisition strategy, and probably for for good reasons in a lot of ways. But the thing that I'm curious about, and I I'm curious what you guys think, is what do these like previously hyped growth by acquisition companies even look like? You know, three to five years from now, and when the market ramps up and M&A starts happening more frequently again like how like how do these companies fit into that or will M&A just be done <laughs> in different ways than we saw in the last um bull cycle so anyways a couple of things there but curious what what you guys think i don't think M&A is dead M&A might be dead in this case you know and, and as we talked about related to microsoft there's been some regulatory pressure on M&A but I think, given the track record of the FTC in the U.S., I, you know, I, I think we're going to return to. I, as we talked about earlier, sorry, we're going to edit and we're going to take this back. So I'm going to be a little more clear. I started to lose. Okay. Related to your point about M and A versus organic growth, as I stated earlier, about I kind of feel like a reversal from pure focus on EBITDA back to some focus on growth, given what's happened to the FTC's challenges and given what's happened to valuations in the public marketplaces, I predict certainly not a return to the level of M&A of 2021, but M&A is not going to be as dead as it's been in the last six months. And so I, I predict, and especially in like, say the realm of esports where valuations are horrible. And in fact, you saw news yesterday that potentially FaZe Clan is being acquired um, 
I do not think M&A in gaming is dead at all. And, and I, I predict an uptake in M&A in gaming. Yeah, I, I agree with that, actually. I guess the, the delineation I'm trying to make is that when M&A returns, I mean, I don't, it hasn't really left, but you know, if it like, returns in some like, higher volume kind of way, is the way that it's going to return be different? And the, kind of the main thing here is that I think M&A can make a lot of sense when you have a strategy and you acquire something that helps you better achieve that strategy <laughs> that, that you have. But for many companies, acquisitions were the strategy. Um, and growth by acquisition was the game. Um, and so I'm curious whether that side of things will, will bounce back. And if it doesn't, like, what do these companies that exist in order to primarily be growth by acquisition, like that was their, <laughs> their motive, like what happens to those companies, you know, in like this next cycle that, that rolls through? I agree with you. And, you know, I, I think the market will delineate quality from, you know, lack of strategy. Uh, and I think the canary in the coal mine to your question might be Vice and BuzzFeed, right? Like if your growth strategy is just acquire stuff and raise more money, you will not survive. But we'll see a return to strategic acquisition and strategic growth. And I think that's probably the best middle ground we could hope to land on. I think we went from too hot to too cold, and hopefully we'll return to some logical functioning marketplace that neither outsizely rewards austerity or outsizely rewards acquisition. Yeah, well said. I agree with all of that. I feel like the acquisitions went mad. There was sort of no rhyme or reason to them. Now they've gone too far the other way, where it's like there's tons of good people out there, but people are too scared from it. And then when people figure out going, oh, like we're a great mobile developer and here's a really great mobile studio or we're a great console developer that makes narrative games and here's a great company that also does that, then surely these dots will connect. Um, but given current economic climate, I don't think it really surprises me that right now you see next to nothing. And as you say, it will, as the cycle, it's a cycle for a reason, it will come back. I'm curious, um, I know what you think about like kind of the role that these some of these like more prominent growth by acquisition companies played in terms of being like a source of exits for like the the startup community and you know when people are creating mobile games or other games there are just a lot of options and interested parties um, who are just looking to acquire and you know there's always going to be some of that, you know, coming from more strategic lenses or maybe like, you know, a Tencent will still be involved in building out its ecosystem in some way. But do you have like any, any early thoughts or observations on like how in the way that M&A could change or just get more specific in this next cycle? Like, do you think that'll have an impact on the startup landscape and how people kind of think about starting companies if their exits are potentially different? Definitely. Well, I think we've seen a big change just in the last two to three years where a lot of startups these days tend to be more cross-platform, more console PC focused than mobile. The big reason for that is because acquisition changes, really. And that's to answer your question, that is why it was so growth focused. So I think what happened with the big players, they thought, oh, right, acquisition is dead. So actually, if you buy 
this game or this studio with these games that have combined 5 million, 10 million daily actives. Actually, if you look at it on a CPI basis, it's quite cheap. It's like if you look at like when um, Facebook Meta bought WhatsApp, it was like 20 billion or something like that. And I think if you worked it out, it was something like $6.50 per user that they were buying for. But I would argue that now, if we look at the current rate, probably a good deal, to be honest, if you were to extrapolate it like that. So I think that was the reason why it changed so quickly and why people felt like they couldn't risk to be left at the station whilst everyone else was jumping on. And then I think people have realized, well, they got carried away with that. As you say, maybe fundamentals are important, stroke strategic acquisitions. So answering your question is like what it will mean for the space. Um See, the thing is, I think that that is all dependent on on what how the market is, right? So I don't think that was necessarily a a decision that startup founders were making to go for that strategy. It's just those were the ones that were being successful. Um, I do know a lot of people who, for example, started making merge games. They're the ones that did really well because that was like the the hot thing on the market. You could grow, you could get the users, but now that genre is really saturated and it's hard to break in. So now there's a lot of people who made that decision and are like stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, they've just adapted to what the market conditions are. I mean, that you could make the same argument with Web3. People thought, okay, this seems to be the way the industry's going. So let's jump on that bandwagon, see if it takes us anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be the same with AI. We'll be the same with whatever. There is a certain thing to doing it. But, you know, Jonathan hit the nail on the head. It comes down to quality, doesn't it? At the end of the day, the ones who will always survive will be the people that genuinely make great stuff. Um, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but there's three guys who make this game called Battlebit. Not really a startup because I think they've been working on it for nine years, but it's suddenly like hit the inflection point and turned the corner. And if you play it, great game. You know, okay, it's got the kind of graphics you'd expect that of three dudes making it in their spare time. It uses kind of like very, you know, blocky type characters and things like this, but the gameplay is like fundamentally great. So, um, yeah, I, do you know what I think is always the, the danger here is that like people will read the market now and then they will make certain changes based on that. And then in two years time, when they might even be at the p- possibility of getting acquired, then it will be a different flavor that is wanted. And therefore, the decisions that they made now will actually backfire on them. Hence, like I say, some people going for hyper growth or merge and things like this. The best thing is always to go for quality, but it is hard to deliver on quality without the necessary resources. I do think that like... um. I would say certainly with like a lot of the Web3 startups, I think the the big worry among some people is that they raised a certain amount to develop a game, but they didn't raise enough to truly finish their game at the quality that they wanted to because they were expecting that they would get their second round for sort of showing their traction. So now they're, in, they're having to re- cut scope or reduce things. And that's like a bit unfortunate because the traditional playbook would have supported the way that they were going and they had the kind of rug pulled from under them. So you know, it's not just those ones. That's just a very recent example because so many people raised. So, yeah, I think that's a dangerous assumption as well. Is that what do you optimize for now, and then it kind of changes. So, actually, I think that what will happen is that you will get um, big M and A going on just on growth again, even though that's not the current fad because these things just sort of go in cycles. Cool. Well, hopefully, there's there's good people left to pick up. That's that's the thing. Is I wonder is is like. You know, you talk about uh, we had these big waves, right? But it's like, does it does it go from a buyer's market to a seller's market kind of thing? If like if all the good ones were picked up, then does that mean it's like, well, then you know, 
you have trouble getting acquired at that point because the you know the, the thirst for acquiring the good quality companies is over or the the opposite where it's just like there's tons if you guys are saying there's tons of good companies left to be picked up then it's like well they're just waiting for you know the the, the checks to be written kind of thing and they're just biding their time and then you know it shifts right like because you get those those things that, like you said with anil as well with with the, what they're making and whether or not that's a hot part of the market and it's like you could end up with those situations where you have these these quality companies making a quality product for a thing that's hot yesterday and then just missed their boat because they weren't one of those M&As that happened during the time when there was just large checks being written. And so it it sounds like a real struggle of timing as as all these markets are, right? Like, I, you don't I feel it, right. it always goes. Yeah, I feel right. it always goes that way though, right? Like that that is literally what happens is that it goes cool, then someone buys someone and then they're like, what the hell? You're telling me you could get those guys. I didn't even know that they were available to be acquired. How can we miss this? So then they go, okay, what's the next? Basically, people just go down a list. And people keep taking them. And then that's why you end up in a situation where we did, where some of the ones, I'm not going to name studios, I think that would be unfair, but there were some acquisitions that were going for like hundreds of millions of dollars when they had at best a patchy record or, you know, just one sort of semi-successful game and were way overvalued. So then that leads to sort of, place where then okay no one's going to buy anything right now and they'll go back the other way that that will kick start again if someone will just pick up a great studio for a price that just seems like bargain basement and yeah yeah everyone's nodding their heads because we've seen this happen like time and time again it's like you know you can set your clock to it almost I imagine it all it, it all starts to scatter some of the talent around as well, right? So then you see them scattered to new studios to potentially be acquired, and uh, the cycle continues, as you say. But uh, you know, we'll, we'll see as the as the money turns around in the market, of course, because you know, like that that goes in its own cycles and the seasons and everything else, right? It's all it's a, try and time it as best you can. But uh, yeah, lots lots of good stuff. I'm sure we'll be hitting this up, uh, you know, pretty regularly as M and A season picks back up again, or when, as you as, as you said, Anil, when when one big purchase happens and everyone gets excited, gets the checkbooks out again, we'll be right back on that train. Uh, so look forward to that, and hopefully it's uh, the right people on the next time round as well. But uh, definitely a lot of, a lot of good stuff today. I thank you guys for of course joining me. Great conversation as always. Thank you to the listener for coming up and, uh, for listening. And uh, of course, make sure to hit us up at the uh, the old mailbag. If you got any feedback, stuff you want to say, topics, whatever, uh, at podcast at novic.co. And of course, as uh, Aaron was mentioning at uh, the beginning, make sure to subscribe to the Digest. A lot of good stuff happening there. A lot of articles, a lot of di- deconstructions, all kinds of stuff as we're really starting to ramp stuff up. And I think it's a great time to make sure you're trying to stay on top of it as best you can alongside, the, of course, the podcast. So, you know, not just this one, but all the other ones we have here. Uh, but In the meantime, we'll see you uh, next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.